Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. Well, let me just ask you this question. Do you always enjoy it? Do you love it when you're in a conversation with somebody and they're just using words that are like, they're just firing words way overhead. You have no clue what they mean and you just stand and go, hmm, hmm. Hmm. Yes, yes, I know what you mean. We have no clue what they mean. And in the church, we're guilty of that. In the church, sometimes we use these big churchy words. Nobody, if you're not a churchgoer, you just came in this morning, you say, I'm not a follower of Jesus. You, you feel like you don't know what these words mean. Nobody knows what these words mean. We just use them because they sound churchy. Let me give you a couple. We use words like propitiation, imputation, edification, sanctification. Somebody say amen. amen. Yes. Nobody has a clue what that stuff means. Bill Hybels in the 90s, he called this the language of shuns. We got all kinds of shuns that we just put out there. You know, nobody knows what this stuff means. And then there's another category of words. There's words that I kind of know what that means. Maybe I don't fully understand what that word means. And even if you're not a churchgoer, you kind of know what this word means. But I would say my contention is I don't think we fully know what it means. And this is the word I want to focus on this morning, reconciliation reconciliation. And you, you people who aren't churchgoers, right, which by the way, can I, just, can I just stop and give this commercial? If you're not a churchgoer, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're here this morning, man, I love it that you would walk into a service like this. You're always welcome. Come back, come back, come back, explore faith, wrestle with faith like the rest of us are. Love having you here. But even if you're not a churchgoer, you say, well, I kind of know what reconciliation means. It means we're kind of like this, and now we're kind of like this again. Right? That's kind of reconciliation. Hey, we were fighting, fighting, fighting. Hey, now we're kind of at peace. And in the church, we kind of talk about that. Uh, we kind of talk about, hey, we were maybe at odds with God, at odds with God, at odds with God. And now maybe kind of we're at peace with God. And we kind of talk about that. My contention is, I don't think we have the full biblical understanding of reconciliation. I think we understand reconciliation kind of. I don't think it's wrong what we think. I think it's incomplete what we think. And so we're going to find that out a little bit this morning. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're in our study in the book of Ephesians. Uh, We're going to do 12 weeks through Ephesians. We could have done two years through the book of Ephesians. It would have been so easy to spend two years here. And we're just spending uh, 12 weeks, so we're in about week five. Pastor Amos preached last week, if you remember the before and the after. If you missed that, you got to go online, cvchurch.org. you got to go online, go back, watch that message. You're going to appreciate it. But Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 11. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, if you would. If you're new, I just always tell people, we don't do the up, down, up, down the whole morning. It's not like you're going to get your heart rate up or anything. Uh, But what we do is we stand during our primary text, and really we do it for us. It's a reminder to us that this is actually God speaking. This isn't just a book, right? So I'm starting in verse 11, follow along. The Apostle Paul speaking says, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who, by the way, were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies, didn't affect their hearts, verse 12. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you didn't know the covenant promises that God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were way far away from God, now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for Christ himself have brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself 
one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other, that was put to death. Verse 17, he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you that it speaks life and truth. Thank you for the truth that it's revealed to us just now. And what we're asking in this brief time now, Father, is that you would speak very clear to us, very clear to us, Father. What is it you desire for us to know from your word? Do that in a way, God, which only draws us to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So let me do this. Let me just briefly touch on context so you remember again kind of where we're at. Ephesians chapter 2 now, uh, last week uh, Pastor Amos talked about there was a before and after, before you had come to Christ, you, you, before you, what life was like for you and what difference Christ made in your life. He made the ultimate difference. He makes the difference of eternal life, the one that's really going to matter the most. Paul has been writing to primarily a Gentile audience. This, we call this the letter to the Ephesians. The reality is this was a letter that made a circular route. It's probably the same route as the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. That's probably the postal route that this made. And the last place that it probably stopped was in Ephesus. That's what we think. Paul had, planned, had, had been very active in the church of, of Ephesus, and he led a major revival there. And when Paul led this revival in the city of Ephesus, people just got crazy, radically saved, and they were coming out of the occult with satanic and paganistic practices. And now we feel like, ah, they were doing okay, and they've just kind of gotten a little off base. And so Paul is coming. We've called this, this uh, series Setting Things Straight. Paul is trying to set things straight again. He's trying to say, hey, hey, this is Christianity. You guys have been drifting, and I'm trying to bring you back to it. And Paul's going to try to set things straight here again. Now, you should also know this as context, and this is really important here, is that there was some animosity between Jews and Gentiles of those days. There was uh, probably, to be perfectly honest, more animosity socially between Jews and Gentiles of that day than what we experience today in our culture. There's probably more. Uh, Jews felt that Gentiles were basically only created to fuel the fires of hell. Jews commonly called in their, just in their everyday vernacular if they were referring to a Gentile. And by the way, Gentile simply means non-Jew. There were only two groups back then that they felt. There were those of us who were Jewish and those who ain't. And they really uh, uh, called in their everyday vernacular, they called Gentiles dogs. They would just refer to them. I saw a dog the other day when I was out for a walk. That's just how they referred to them. It, it, it was so, uh, so, so, so advanced, for instance, that in no way was any, Gentile, or any Jew ever allowed to assist in any way in the delivering of a Gentile baby. Doesn't matter the situation, doesn't matter the severity, doesn't matter what emergency it is, doesn't matter if life is at stake. If you're a Jew, you are not allowed to assist in any way the birthing process of a Gentile because if you do, you personally are now responsible for bringing another pagan dog into the world. That's how they felt. Gentiles, on their other hand, felt the Jews were the homicidal enemies of the entire world. I'm just telling you, you need, to, you need to have this understanding that there's this great animosity. And Paul's going to touch on it now in verse 11 when he says this. 
Don't forget, you Gentiles. This is, this is who the people in Ephesus primarily were. They were Gentiles, non-Jews. Don't forget that you used to be outsiders, is the language he uses. And he says, you were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews. Some of you will remember the story of David and Goliath. Little boy David defeats the big giant Goliath. And just before the big battle between these two, David was at home as a father. His brothers were out with the other Jews in the army and they were doing battle. And his father says, David, your brothers are going to need some food. And so I want you to take this to him. He packed a bag of food. David takes the food. You remember this? He heads out to his brothers. And when he gets there to the battle scene, all the Jewish men are hiding. They're hiding behind trees. They're hiding behind rocks. They're hiding behind, like, whatever. Like, they're hiding because they're afraid. This behemoth, Goliath, is out there. And he's yelling just unbelievable insults at the Jews. And David gets onto the scene. Do you remember this? He says, he looks around at the fellows and he says, who is that? uncircumcised pagan it's a derogatory slang term that's what David said and Paul is saying don't forget Gentiles non-Jews don't forget you used to be outsiders and you were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who by the way they were proud of their circumcision even though it really only affects your body and not your heart that's what he's saying to them right then he continues and he said, in those days, Gentiles, you were living apart from Christ. In those days, you were Christless. You were without Christ. In those days, you were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You were Christless and you were stateless. Further, he says, and you didn't know the covenant promises God had made to them. You were Christless, you were stateless, and you were promiseless. And as a result of that, he says this, you lived in this world without God and without hope, hopeless. They were totally alienated from God. These people were hopeless, right? And then he goes on and he says, but now, remember last week? Remember last week you were reading about how desperate we were apart from God and how in the tanks our lives were. And then it said, but God, but God. It's the same idea here Paul is doing. He's saying, but now, Gentiles, but now. So you know this, you already know this. Things are about to be different. Things are about to change. It's not the same anymore, he says. But now, now, he says, you've been united with Christ Jesus. You once were far away from God. Now listen to language. But now you have been brought near to God, right, through the blood of Christ. This is reconciliation. Reconciliation is that you've been brought near to God. You were enemies of God. Why? Because of our sin. We were enemies with God because of our sin. You know, sometimes people say, well, is God just an angry God? Does God just want to, he just want to like punish people? Is that God? No, far from it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What is the most often spoke of characteristic of God in the Bible? It is that he is holy. And a holy God must separate himself from sin. A holy God cannot tolerate sin. We were at odds with God because of our sin, but because of Christ, we are now reconciled. We are made right. We are now at peace. That's reconciliation. Reconciliation is you take two parties who are at odds, right? And we now have peace with God. We now have peace with God. This is all good now. This is fantastic, right? And he goes on and he says, for Christ himself has brought peace, peace to us. Oh, okay, so he's saying he's brought peace to us. We all now have peace with God. That's what Paul's saying, I think, and I'm not really sure here. I'm a little stunned. I guess that's what he's saying. 
We were far away from God, and now he's made peace with God. We, we've, all got, we've all got peace with God. I think that's what he's saying. And then he says this. Well, he united Jews and Gentiles. Oh, so he's saying this. You were reconciled this way, and now he's brought peace to us Jews and Gentiles. This wasn't right. This relationship wasn't right. But when this relationship got straightened out, see, this relationship has to, Jews and Gentiles, are you kidding me? Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles now at peace, Jews and Gentiles living in peace. How did that happen? It happens because of this. It happens because of this. Because this, this reconciliation necessarily means there has to be this reconciliation. You're talking about the two most hostile groups ever toward each other. And now there's this reconciliation. They're at peace with one another. Now listen, I know that some of you get, you get frustrated. And say, I, I hear you. Some of you are tired about us talking about the division that's going on in the culture, about the prejudice, about the racism that's going on today. Let me just tell you this. We have to talk about it today. And we ought to be talking about it in the church. And if I don't talk about this, it is pastoral malpractice. In the midst of what we're going through today, if we're in Ephesians 2, in this passage, and we don't talk about the prejudice and racism that's going on today, it is pastoral malpractice. And here's the beauty. If you're new, here's the other beauty of what you need to know about this church, about this group of people. Our church doesn't want me to not talk about it. Our church isn't here to just say, throw us a softball so we can all go home and feel good about ourselves. Our church actually doesn't like that. Our church wants to talk about these things. Listen, we have to address this today. We have, and the other reason we have to is because the church holds the answer. This, this problem that we're having today is not about more activism. I'm not saying we shouldn't get active. I'm saying that's not the solution. The answer is evangelism. The answer is the gospel. The answer is people coming to know Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we just sit back and go, well, we'll preach the gospel and we won't ever address it. No, we're, we're, we're talking about it. I'm just saying the real answer is Jesus. Now, he's saying this, that this reconciliation necessarily leads to this reconciliation. This is what happened in the context of what Paul's talking. But watch what else he says in this. He says, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Now, this is a metaphor. Clearly, this can be a metaphor. Like, look, when two people ain't getting along, there's this wall of hostility that goes on between them. There's, we can say that, oh, man, there's this real wall of hostility. But in this context, with the audience that Paul's writing to, this is not a metaphor. It is, I will say this, it is not only a metaphor. This is strong, graphic, emotive, very clear language that Paul is giving them, this wall of hostility. In Herod's temple in the first century, there was the temple complex, and then part of the temple complex, there was the court of the Gentiles. And that was the one place in the temple where Gentiles could actually go. These dogs, these uncircumcised pagan heathen dogs, they could actually go there. So at least they could hear the, the word that was going on. At least they could hear that. But separating this court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple complex is this wall. It's this wall, and it separates them. And it's designed to keep the two groups separate, but most clearly it was designed to keep those uh, Gentiles away from us. And the, the Jewish historian Josephus, who is widely acclaimed, widely read, wi widely revered and respected, Josephus was a first century Jewish 
historian. He was never a follower of Jesus. He actually became a Roman citizen eventually. But he wrote about this wall of hostility. And Josephus writes about this inscription that was on the wall. The inscription was in both uh, Latin and in Greek. And then we had two major excavations. One was in 1871. One was in 1934. And in these excavations, they actually dug up this wall. And they saw and they dug up the inscription that Josephus saw and talked about. And the inscription says this on the wall. No foreigner. Foreigner doesn't mean somebody from a different town. Foreigner means you ain't a Jew. This is saying specifically no Gentile. No foreigner may enter enter within the barricade in the rest of the temple, which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That was on the wall. Now, Paul just said this, and he broke down the wall of hostility. He broke down that wall of hostility. And you can imagine he just rips it down. He tears it down. He breaks down the wall. And now here's what's really cool. You don't have two groups and you have the wall down. And now they both go, hey, what's going on over there? I can see you now. No, 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 no. You can see the wall coming down. You can see the wall getting ripped down. You can see the wall broken down. And now they do this. See, this is reconciliation. We ain't looking to have two different groups in the same room, three different groups in the same room. We're not looking for that. We're looking for true reconciliation. Reconciliation means this. Jesus broke down the wall of uh, uh, this hostility. Now watch this. How did he do that? He says he broke down the wall of hostility. But look right before that. It says he did that in his own body on the cross. Now just stop and ask yourself a minute. Why did Jesus die on the cross? And the answer is really simple. For our sin. Are you tracking with me? The wall of hostility was a wall of sin. See, here's the thing. When I treat another group of, different, uh, of people, when I treat them differently, that isn't bad behavior. That is sin. And it's an affront to a holy God. When I treat a group of people differently because of their ethnicity, when I treat a group of people differently because of, of their cultural background, that, that isn't just, you know, that's not playing nice. No, that is sin. But, but let me take it a step further. Because it's not just our behaviors. It's not just the physical acts that we do. If I have attitude or thoughts that say, you folks, are, you folks are inferior to us because of your cultural background, because of the way you do things culturally. If I have beliefs or attitudes like that, that is actually sin. Look, Jesus said this in the New Testament. Do you remember this? He said, you have heard it was said that, it's, that if you commit adultery, that, that it's wrong, that it's not, you're not to commit adultery. Okay, that's the action. But then Jesus said this, I say to you, Christ himself said this, I say to you that if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, that's the thought, you've committed the sin. Why? Because he knows this, that the actions we do come from hearts that are wrong, from thoughts that are wrong. That's why this stuff is sin when it's in here. If I have attitudes or thoughts that say you're inferior, you're less than us, you are them, you are those people. That's every bit the sin as when we treat people inappropriately. This is a sin issue. There's just nothing else that we can call it. 
Now, let me just get you all real comfortable with this. Everybody, everybody, every, listen to me, everybody has these types of thoughts. Everybody has racist thoughts. You want to know who has racist thoughts sometimes? Boom, your pastor. Everybody. Now, Martin Luther said this, the German monk said this. It's not wrong to have a bird fly over your head. It's wrong to let it make a nest in your hair. So I have a thought that is in my head. What am I supposed to do with that? The Bible is very clear. We take every thought captive. When that thought comes into my head, I say this, boom, gotcha, that is sin, and I confess it to the Father. And I deal with it. Those thoughts come into our head. Those thoughts are in the head of every people. They're in your head if you're white, if you're brown, if you're black, if you're old, if you're young. We just have those thoughts. We take every thought captive. This whole thing, Lester, you're the one who said amen. I'll just ask you this. This whole thing, too, just so you know this about being colorblind. Brother, can you tell I'm white? Can you tell that? Nicole, can you tell I'm white? Okay, here's the thing. I know you're black, and I love you. And I say, I celebrate your blackness. I celebrate everything that about you that is culturally black, and I celebrate it. This whole idea that we're colorblind is the most ridiculous thing. We're not colorblind. We are colorblessed. We are colorblessed. We say, man, brother, black, brown, white, we are blessed because of your color. We say we bring it all together, and we offer it to God as praise and worship. We, 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 we don't, no, 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 don't tell. I can't tell. I, I couldn't tell you were, Le- oh, Lester, you're black. You just told me that. I'm glad I couldn't tell. I didn't know that. <laughs> That's the silliest thing. It's silly for us to say, oh, I don't ever have a racist thought. What? You're the only one in the building. <laughs> don't tell me that you don't have any racist thoughts because you have a blank friend. Don't tell me that. I don't have any racist thoughts. I have a black friend. Oh, it just made it impossible for you to ever have a racist thought. I have a white friend. I have a brown friend. That doesn't exclude you from being human. We take every thought captive, right? It's sin. It's a sin issue. He goes on to say, he also did it by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. Jesus did that. He broke down this wall of hostility because he broke down the the, the system of law. Jesus fulfilled the law that we could never fulfill, Jews could never fulfill. Jesus broke that all down. Further, it says, he made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating himself one new people group. We We are now one new people group, followers of Jesus. That's the people group that we are. Bishop John Green was an Australian uh, bishop. I love the story that he tells. He talks about he used to drive this bus every day, and he had white kids and he had aborigines on the bus. He'd been driving this bus for years, and he finally just got sick and tired of all the bickering. One day he pulls over onto the shoulder road, locks up the brakes, pulls it to a screeching halt, he writes about it. He gets up out of his seat and he said, stop it. Everybody stop it. We're no longer two groups. We're not black and we're not white. We're not aborigine. We're not. We're, We're not group. We're one group from now on. You hear me? Everybody, listen to me. We're green. From now on, we are green. And he turns to some white boys and he says, did you hear me? Yeah. What did I say? You said we're all green. What color are you? We're green. That's right. You're green. Then he turns over to some of his aborigine kids and he says, you're no longer black and brown. You're no. Do you hear me? Yes, yes, we hear you. We're green now. Did you hear that? Yes. What color are you? We're green. That's right. We're all green. Everybody, we're green. 
He just turns around and walks down, gets in his bus, starts driving again. Thought he had the problem solved. He said it wasn't very long. Kid in the back of the bus stood up and he said, all right, dark green on that side, light green on that side. Aren't we just always trying to do that? Aren't we just looking for reason to separate? No, no, no. We're color blessed. We are one. The reconciled now become the reconcilers. Yes? That's our ministry. And the reason it's our ministry is this. Because the world is actually, I don't know if you know this. The world is actually looking for an answer. Okay, now just do a little math in your head real quick. Just write this down. Who's got the answer? Thank you. We do. We're holding the answer. Church, it's a golden opportunity for us. I mean, golden opportunity for us. It's, uh, this could not be more advantageous to the church. It's, it's not about, listen, I, I believe in activism. I think we need to be out doing things. Yes, probably truth be told, I haven't led enough of that. And I repent of that. And we need to be doing that. But that's not the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution is the gospel. Not activism. Think evangelism. Think discipleship. That's what we got to be doing. It doesn't mean we don't bring this up. It doesn't mean we don't talk about it. It doesn't mean we just go, well, I read them in the Bible. That's, your, that's not working either. Okay? Paul goes on and he says, together as one body, one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was then put to death. Verse 18 in your Bibles, and he says, now, and I love the language, now all of us, all, we're just one group, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of Christ, what Christ has done for us. We're one group. We're one group. We're one group. Now, now let me explain to you why I think personally this is so crucial at Cedar Valley Church and to anybody who calls this their home. First of all, I say this all the time. If you're new or whatever here and you, you haven't been around much, we're not a civic organization. We're not a, we're not a fraternity. We're not something like that. We're the church. You ever that feeling where you kind of got a sneeze and you're just waiting for it? Okay, I'm there right now. But we're, we're a church. <laughs> we're a church. We're a church on a mission. I'm just waiting to see what will we like when I sneeze into this microphone, you know? We're on mission. Let me just give you our mission. This is our mission. Leading people from where they are to where God wants them to be. We say that all the time. This isn't just something we came up with. On our own, it's a scriptural mandate. It's a scriptural mandate. Go and make disciples. We just say it different. Same exact thing. That's what we're about. Just, I just want to reassure everybody this. Our mission is not going to change. It won't change. It will never change. This is what we are always going to be about. And our strategies change all the time, and they just have to, and I know it's tough for us. But we don't just have a mission. We're a church with a very distinct vision. We're very clear about our vision as a church. And I want to read you, just remind you, keep in front of you, our vision. Our vision is this. We dream of being a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church that reflects Jesus to our neighbors and the nations. Now, listen, you don't dream of mediocrity. You have nightmares. But when you dream something, it's a big dream. You don't have a dream and you're like, yeah, I, I woke up and I realized that, uh, you know, my dream was that the, the milk was lukewarm, that it was just lukewarm. Like, we don't dream of that. We dream of really awesome things. Right. We think this is an awesome thing that we're dreaming of. Multi-ethnic 
and multi-generational, both. A lot of churches don't want to do that. We have the most beautifully multi-generational church. I mean, I just absolutely love that. I love seeing old people worship with young people. I like seeing the middle people. I like, I like the whole thing. I love how multi-generation we are. We are increasingly a multi-ethnic church, and I love that. I love it. Now, stop and think for a minute. What is a vision? And the answer is this. A vision is a preferred future. In other words, we're here. It's all right. It's all right. You know, here's the vision. Oh, that'll be awesome. I can't wait to get up there. I don't want to be here anymore. This stinks. Where we're at, I didn't even realize it. Where we're at right now stinks. I want to be up. Right, that's vision. Preferred future. Okay, now think in your head. Why is this a preferred future? Because that's a fair question. That's a really good question. Why do we think that's a, a, a preferred future? Why do we think multi-ethnic and multi... Why, why is that preferred? You, you ever have one of those days or maybe one of those weeks or maybe it was 2020 where you just go, man, that was tough. That was just brutal. I was really... I'm in one of those seasons. And when I'm, for me, when I'm in those seasons, I just say to myself, I don't have any plans to check out, just so you know that. But I, but I think sometimes, man, I just wish I could go to heaven now. I just wish I could have a taste of heaven. I just wish I could have a glimpse of heaven. I wish I could experience that now, right? The Apostle John was the closest friend of Jesus, his most intimate, closest friend. The, gospel, uh, the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. Then he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And then he wrote the Revelation. It's the last book of our Bible. It's the Revelation. And in there, he has some, some vision. I don't know how it happened. I don't know exactly what caused it, but he had this vision, powerful vision. And remember, vision is preferred future. And so he opens the letter, and then in chapters 2 and 3, he, he kind of writes to these seven churches. And then he gets into chapter 4, and he talks about, it's so cool, he talks about what is worship going to look like in heaven? What is heaven going to be like? And what is worship going to be like? And he describes this, this big crowd, and they're all standing in front of the throne, and they're chanting together like it's one massive group. And they chant, and they say, Salvation is from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. He's just worshiping, worshiping. It's just amazing. You can say, well, how cool would it be to be there? But in the previous verse, in verse 9, that's in about 10 and 11, but in verse 9, he actually describes to you the crowd. Now listen to this. This is heaven. This is taste of heaven. Get a load of this. Here's the crowd. He, he says, it's this vast crowd, too great to count, and they are from every nation. That's the Greek word, ethnos. They're from every ethnicity. They're from every tribe. They're from every people. They're from every language. That's the crowd that he sees in heaven. He's like, man, this is taste of heaven right here. Just get a feel for this. All right, now do this just for a second. You, you can close your eyes. You can keep your eyes open. It doesn't matter. I want you to get a picture in your head. Heaven. Got it? Picture of heaven in your head. Got it? We're all standing there, and everybody's worshiping. And the worship is amazing. I mean, it's amazing worship. We're just in the presence of God. Okay, now think about this for a minute. Because if everybody in that picture looks just like you, your picture's wrong. So you see, your picture's wrong. The real picture of heaven, what's going to be so good, man, we're going to be so many different colors, every nation, every ethnos, every ethnicity. We can experience a taste of heaven right now. 
I've had this crazy picture in my head for the last 10 years. And it just won't go away. It's this vision that I have, and I, in all my heart, with all my heart, I believe that it came from God. It's before I was a pastor of this church. It's this room. It was so clear to me in my head. It's this room, and this room is packed, and we're all on our feet, and we were all worshiping. It is as colorful in here as you can even imagine, and I can't get away from it. Like that picture just doesn't go away for me. I believe that's going to happen. I believe that's going to happen. I believe that's absolutely going to happen. But there has to be reconciliation. Let me give you the big so what so we get on to it. The big so what is this, man. Real Jesus. When this has really happened, when this has truly happened, this has to happen. There has to be real peace. And I mean real peace. I mean reconciliation, not toleration. I mean real, I mean that, that has to happen. If this has happened, we, we, we got to be doing this. Man, do you understand how crucial this is? Do you understand how right now at this time in history, do you understand how, how crucial our unity is? Jesus himself was praying to God the Father. And he was praying for you and me right now today. He was praying for us. And this is what he said. God, he's praying to God, God, may they, he's talking about us in the future even, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know. Like that's why this stuff is so crucial today. That's why it's so exciting today. We're the only ones who have, it's not more politics, it's not more this program, that program, it's the gospel, but it's gotta come through us and it can't come through us if we don't examine our own hearts. Where are we off? Where are we wrong? So let me give you just, first of all, this has gotta start with you spiritually. This is a spiritual exercise where you gotta pray and you gotta say, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Reveal to me, reveal to me like what's in me that just ain't right regarding attitudes toward people, beliefs about people or right about behavior toward people. What is, what isn't welcoming God, Holy Spirit, you got to reveal this to me. You got to point out my sin. And then I take my sin and I say to God, God, I agree with you. I ain't telling you something you don't know. I agree with you. That is as wrong as can be. Forgive me. Give me the strength to repent, to turn from that, to change. Okay, that's what you got to do first. On a practical space then, here's what we do. Man, just start with your contacts. Like this is really fun for me. Just grab your phone and start going through your contacts. If everybody in your contacts looks just like you do, it's going to make it harder for you. If everybody in your contacts looks exactly like you, uh, that's going to be tough. If everybody that you ever have had to your home looks just like you, it's going to be tough. If everybody that you ever hang out with looks exactly like you, it's going to be tough. Start with your contacts. So Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your son Jesus and the sacrifice he was. And Jesus, we say thank you that you willingly died for us, that you reconciled us to God, that you made us right with you, and that we must necessarily then make things right with man. And so help us to do that. Thank you for the gift of communion and the reminder that it is. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.